Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Dr. Robert Bosnack author and Zurich-trained Jungian psychoanalyst for over 40 years who pioneered the embodied imagination method. He was also past president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams and is the founder of the Santa Barbara Healing Sanctuary. Dr. Bosnack, thank you so much for being my guest today and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I am very glad to be here. All right, if you don't mind, let's just start somewhere simple. What is your working definition of dreaming? Um, My working definition is that a dream is an event. Um, It's a place where we find ourselves. And as we find ourselves in this place, we are convinced that we are awake. We are convinced that everything around us is real. When you touch things, they are real. When you smell things, they are real. Everything's real. And then you wake up. So the reality that you've been in, even though it presented itself as physical, is quasi-physical. It's as if physical. And so it's a quasi-physical place that you suddenly find yourself in. That's a dream. It's interesting that you use the words, we convince ourselves that it's real. So No, 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 no. We are convinced. Oh, we are convinced. We, we yeah. are convinced. No, right. no, no. We don't have to convince ourselves at all. No, we are totally convinced that it's real. And that's why uh, people frequently, when they have a horrible experience in a dream, mm-hmm. and they wake up, they say, thank God this was a dream. Mm-hmm. So you experience it as entirely real. That is your experience. It, it's experienced as real. Right. So it is an experience. Now, yes. we, our consciousness is generating this experience would you say it's more of a generating it or is this imagination? That's, that's a big question that uh, can be answered in both ways. You can go two directions in it. Um, you can say that it is generated, that dreams are generated by us. And then you would feel that it is part of us, our brain or whatever you want to say, creating the dream. Or you can say a dream is perceived by us so that there is a dreaming world out there that we perceive. Um, The answer to that question is impossible to give. And uh, the only thing that I uh, can say is that we experience it as real. We experience it as happening outside of us. 
We're not feeling it. We're not experiencing it in our body. We're experiencing it in a world. So it's a world that is outside of us. And what we then say afterwards is basically we're parroting what our culture tells us to say about it. So if you're in a science culture, then science culture says it's a quake in the brain, in the brainstem that happens that the cortex is trying to make sense of. If you are an Aboriginal person, you will say this um, is a meeting with my ancestors. If you are um, in in China, you would say it's a prediction of the future or it's a way to look into the future. Every culture has its own notions. If you are coming at it from a Western psychologist perspective, then the, the Western psychologist would say these are aspects of you. It has nothing to do with dreaming. It has to do with the culture that you come from. The only thing that we can say of a dream is that it is an experience that is experienced as entirely real. That's what we can say. So you don't believe then, or maybe you do, that most of our dreams are a reflection of what happened earlier in the day and our brains are just trying to kind of sort it out and maybe probably process the day and learn from it. Right. That is one particular perspective. That is the perspective of people who are usually in science. And so it comes from a particular direction. And so I can only say that that is a particular direction, a particular way of looking at it. Um, uh, it's a, you can prove it. You can prove that that is what dreams are about. You can prove that it's about learning and all these kind of things. But then when you come to another culture, the other culture wouldn't believe that at all. They would believe something entirely different. They have just spoken to a real entity. Maybe they have spoken to an ancestor or they've spoken to somebody who's deceased or every culture has their own notion about it. So because I work in all different cultures all over the world, I can only go by what people experience, not by what people say it is, because I don't mm. know what it is. Mm. See, I, I am fundamentally um, speaking um, an agnostic, which means that about ultimate things, I know absolutely nothing. And so I don't know what dreams ultimately are, because that is a realm that we cannot access. We don't know what it ultimately is. We experience it. Some people in their dreams encounter people that they know, usually. It's quite often for me in my dreams that I see people that I've never met. Do you mm -hmm. think that I'm possibly going to other realities or maybe I saw someone during the day that I don't even remember and they just pop up in a dream? Again, there are many ways of explaining this. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways to explain this is the way that we currently make avatars in artificial um, intelligence, uh, where you take a lot of things that you put together and create from that an avatar that is, looks entirely human. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that in this space, which I call the imaginal space, in this imaginal world of dreaming, um, there is actual creativity going on that can create entities that you've never seen before. And there are um, people that see entities that um, do not uh, exist in in, on the physical plane. They see dragons or uh, strange kinds of uh, bizarre animals or beings that do not exist on the physical plane. So the imagination appears to create entities. And so I know that I'm in a world that is a world of imagination. This is a world that is being imagined as I'm in it. 
And but the people, the people that populate that world are actual presences and they behave as if they are entirely alive. And so I have to take them by their word because otherwise I will just judge them from outside. And that is like going to a country that you don't know and a person begins to talk about what they believe and what they feel. And then you tell them, no, that's not what you feel. You really are that and that and that. So I, I think that people do that with dreams all the time. They tell the dreaming what it is. But I'm not going in, into it like that. I help people to return back into the dream world, back into that reality through a process that is called flashback. So I help them flashback into the dream and explore it as a reality onto itself. And then, and then it begins to give. It becomes incredibly rich. Um, otherwise, it is predictable. Otherwise, oh, you're trying to learn that, or oh, it's about your mother, or oh, this is about uh, your nephew George who's coming back from the dead. Now, I I think that dreams are a mystery, and so if we can enter that mystery, we have the richest experience of them. And I'm interested in value. I'm interested in rich experience, and that's also why I'm interested in alchemy, because alchemy is about creating value. So are you saying that dreams are purely created from our imagination and then we're experiencing our imagination? Yeah, Yeah, I don't think it's our imagination, though. I think there is imagination and I don't uh, I don't know if it's our imagination. That's already um, a presumption. Um, I think that there is imagination. There is the creation of presences presences are there in the same way that we are presences that that have been somehow created that have been made by way of our dna or by god whatever your belief system is and um so i think that there is a world of quasi-physical presences that is in a constant state of creation i don't know if it's my imagination i i know it's imagination but i don't know if it's my imagination we in the in the last 800 years of our culture, we have appropriated imagination as if it's our imagination. 800 years ago, um, especially if you go back 2000 years ago, imagination was not seen as proprietary to humans. Imagination exists and imagination exists just as the physical world exists. And so you can be in this imagination that is um, that presents a physical world, but I don't know if it's my imagination. That's an assumption. Would you say if it's not our imagination, it may be part of like the collective unconsciousness of the universe? That may be that may be an explanation. Um, I am uh, I'm, I'm saying that there is a constant creation of presences. As we are dreaming, we are experiencing a constant creation of presences. Who creates it? I don't know. Um, what it means? I don't know. But I can get back to it. And if I start interacting with it, and if I start to not just identify with my position, but with others' positions, like, for instance, if I'm chased by a dog, if I can see it from the perspective of the dog and feel it from the perspective of the dog, I get an entirely different experience of the dream. So I can help people shift realities, shift out of their out of their common habitual reality into a fresh new reality, they will start to see the world entirely differently. So that's what I'm really interested in, to have people move out of their habitual states 
the way because we we get we get captured by the stories that we're in and so i try to help people get out of that story that has a hold of them into another story from another perspective which you can do for instance via dreaming you can do it via alchemy you can do it in many different way but my my main interest is to shift perspectives which is really important in this world because people get so focused on their own perspective and they so believe in their own perspective that they invade another country so it is really important to be capable of shifting perspectives that's my job that's what i teach all over the world how to shift perspectives Hmm, that's fascinating to think about other people's perspectives in your own dream correct Hmm. All right. Um, what about nightmares? Are they good or bad for us? Uh, that really also, again, I, my answer will always be it depends and I don't know. <laughs> Those are my two answers. Um, so uh, what we have seen is that people who are suffering severe trauma, um, after the trauma, um, get nightmares. And those nightmares can be ways that the system is trying to digest the trauma. Um, So in that way, then nightmares would be good. Uh, Nightmares can also be um, so terrible that they become traumatic onto themselves so that it would be bad. Um, And so uh, I think that um, nightmares, if they become debilitating, then you should really do something about it. Um, If they are just very bad dreams and and things that um, you feel you can deal with, but it's horrible, then the way that I work with them um, can be very useful, which is going back into them and seeing the the perspectives of the creatures that pursue you, that, that attack you, and moving it out of your perspective of the victim into the perpetrator's perspective, into the the active perspective and then you get a completely different view of it i feel like we can almost reclassify dreams as imaginative experiences yes yes and if so why do people have recurring ones is there something that they're not learning from that experience or they're not getting from that experience that they keep going back to it yeah that's a possibility um uh I um, think more that there are structural things, like uh, you have a skeleton that is structural to your body, um, and uh, uh, you. Um, so there, there are structural themes that keep on repeating themselves because they're part of the structure of your soul. Um, I think that. Um, uh, over time, they shift. The themes may stay the same, but they shift. Now, there are dreams that are entirely, literally repetitive. The same dream again and again. Not a theme, but exactly the same event. Those are usually caused by trauma uh, and are basically replays of a trauma, of a traumatic situation. And um, the more traumatized you are, the more you suffer from PTSD, the more the chances are that you have such dreams that never change. And um, the interesting thing, however, is that then suddenly you have a dream that is almost the same, but is slightly different. Now, then we focus on the slight difference, because that's where the digestion of the trauma is happening. 
And, um, but there are dreams that are entirely exactly the same, and that is usually post-traumatic dreams. But that's not the ordinary repetitive dream. What we call a repetitive dream is usually the repetition of a theme, and that is not necessarily traumatic. Are there common experiences through dreams that are symbolic and have meaning, like your teeth are falling out or you're always fighting in your experiences or things like that? I think that um, you can, again, explain it in many different ways. And uh, the, the problem is that if you have 10 people and you ask 10 experts, uh, so-called, about dreams, and you ask them what a particular theme means, they will come up with 10 different meanings. Um, so you can say that your teeth falling out is that um, that you can't defend yourself anymore, or that you are angry and you can't deal with the anger, whatever. There's many different ways. It doesn't interest me. What interests me is the experience of losing your teeth. Mm. What is it like to mm. suddenly not have teeth? What is it like to stand in this world and, and, and your teeth are falling out? What is it like when you hear your teeth click in, in the wash basin and, and suddenly you're pulling them out? Well, what is that? Does it hurt? That interests me. Mm. And then you get a whole experience and whole embodied experience. And that embodied experience is meaningful. So I'm not interested in what a dream means, but I'm interested in a dream as an access to meaningful experiences. Right. Why is it that most of us generally don't remember our dreams and they're easily forgotten and we have to write them down? I think that if you would remember all your dreams, you would be psychotic. Um, I so it's a defense system. Uh, that's what I assume that it's a defense system that is built into um, into our um, way of being that we don't have to remember all the dreams. I think that a person who remembers their dreams really well maybe remember like somewhere ninety uh, uh, will forget about ninety five percent of their dreams. So you don't. Because we dream like four hours a night, so um, or three hours, three, four hours. It depends on what kind of theory you espouse. Um, and uh, so if you would remember all that, you would be completely stuffed up. So I think forgetting is a very good part of dreaming. So dreaming goes between the consciousness that can uh, experience dreaming and waking there is an in-between space it's called the hypnagogic or hypnopompic state and in that state there's amnesia mm -hmm. so between the two states is amnesia so if there's dreams that can circumvent that amnesia um, and that is uh, for uh, easier for people have a very good short-term memory because if you can remember a dream on the sh in the short-term memory and then pass it on to the longer-term memory, then you can hold on to dreams better. That's why frequently young people, especially teenagers, can tell you dreams that last for an hour. Um, and um, I always dread those dreams. Hmm. Uh, um, but... Um, on average, people forget the vast, vast, vast majority of their dreams, and I think that's a good thing. 
I had a great question, but then I was listening to you and I forgot the question. <laughs> See, that's, that's amnesia. That's, that's when you move from one state to another. When you move from one state to another, in between those states, frequently there's amnesia. What I find fascinating from hearing from you is that there's so much unknown about dreams and yes. so much uncertainty. I guess we could take each expert's analysis and opinions of dreams kind of like a grain of salt. Yeah. And I don't know if, even if it's still so much that is unknown. I think there's so much that is absolutely unknown mm. that will never be known. Mm. And um, uh, I think that as we as we work on dreams, we can relish in them and we can experience them and we can let them affect us. Um, but um, my attitude is uh, Socratic, where um, uh, Socrates, who was the teacher of Plato, is the beginning of Western philosophy, said, um, I know nothing. The only thing that I know more than others is that I really know nothing. <laughs> And so um, that that sense of not knowing is really important. And um, in psychology, we call that unconscious. So that is not knowing. The word unconscious means I don't know. And so the not knowing is really central to our form of psychology. I'm a psychoanalyst. So to our form of psychology, um, not knowing is essential. Since dreams are difficult to remember them, especially in their entirety, do you have to put per, put a person in the meditative state or a or a hypnotic state to be able to help them remember their dreams and then look at them from different perspectives? Yes, um, that's at least what I do. I help people to, see as you fall asleep, you go uh, through a, a space that is called the hypnagogic state. The hypnagogic state is the movement into sleep and you, you get into sleep onset and sleep onset is a very creative state because when, if you wake a person up during sleep onset, 70% of the time they will remember a dream. 70% of the time they are dreaming. They know that they're dreaming, not that they will remember it, but they know that they're dreaming. The most efficient dream state is REM sleep. Um, and that is when I think it's more than 90% people um, report that they were dreaming. Um, but in REM sleep is very different because REM sleep, the, um, the cholinergic and the aminergic system in the brain, two different chemistries are completely turned upside down. But in, that's not yet the case with sleep onset. So sleep onset, we're still in a similar state that we are right now, but also in dreaming. So I help the person to get as close to sleep onset as, as I can without them falling asleep and keep them in that almost sleep onset state, which is called the hypnagogic state, and help them to stay in there. And then they have much more access to the world of images. Mm. Then they have much more access to the dream state. They have much more access to this imaginal world in which we experience uh, encounters. In doing your work and with helping people with their dreams, what kind of improvements do you see with your clients? I see that um, they become much more adaptive. And uh, one of the biggest, um, I mean, Darwin already tells us that one of the, the biggest things about evolution is adaptation. We constantly have to adapt. Um, and uh, just 
think about what you went through during COVID. That was all adaptation. You had to adapt. And the people who adapted better came out better than the people who didn't adapt so well. So um, adaptation is the most important thing that comes out of it, because as you learn to shift perspectives all the time, you become more flexible. And so in that flexibility, you can adjust better to unknown circumstances. Hmm. And so I, I see and then and then uh, people can deal much better with their um, with their problems and their emotional problems, their physical problems. And then in the healing sanctuary that you told that uh, um, that I created, um, there are people that also had much help with their um, physical states with cancer and with Parkinson's. And we can help people uh, prepare people for um, operations and they go through their operations much better. So there, there are many physical and emotional aspects to it. People get uh, more flexible in their relationships because they can begin to imagine other states than their own. And one of the biggest problems in, in relationships is that people can only imagine their own um, their own state and cannot imagine the state of somebody else. So you become more empathic. All those are um, are important sideshows of the work that I'm doing. In the beginning, I mentioned that you pioneered embodied imagination method. What is that? Embodied imagination goes from the perspective that um, when I I take as my paradigm for imagination dreaming. Because as I said, in dreaming, you're in a real world. It's the experience of a reality. And um, in that world of the dream, everything is embodied. So when you, uh, in a dream, you run into a wall, you can feel it on your face. You can feel the impact. Um, it's, it's really there. And um, so embodied imagination is that everything in imagination presents itself as embodied and that it affects our body. It affects our body before it affects our mind. Um, embodied imagination, for instance, I walk in the woods and I see something and I jump back because the information goes in through the amygdala and then it goes the limbic system and then it goes into the body. So the body responds first and then it goes to the visual cortex in the back, which takes several milliseconds longer. And there the, the visual cortex says, no, 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 that was not a snake. That was a stick. And so your embodied imagination has responded to your fear of snakes. And um, so therefore, I think um, imagination and body always interact. When you see a person um, imagining and feeling something really sad, their whole body response. You can see their whole body go into a slump. So uh, imagination always embodies. That's what embodied imagination is about. Do you think that our imagination sometimes sends the wrong signals and we're having the wrong response? It may send signals that do not correspond to physical reality. Yes. I don't yeah. know if they're the wrong signals, but they, they can be um, like, for instance, uh, if a person has, um, uh, has been obese and over a period of time, um, they have lost all their weight and they look in the mirror, they still see an obese person because the body dysmorphia doesn't go away. So in their embodied state, they still feel big. Mm -hmm. whereas their physical state is now thin. 
but they can't feel it. So um, then in their embodied imagination, they are still big. That doesn't mean that it's a wrong information. It's the information that comes from imagination and not from physicality. And also the example you gave previously, you imagined that the stick was a snake and you had this reaction, but then you finally understood. So in that method that you're talking about, are we having to work on our imagination? Yes. Uh, I think that um, the imagination, this embodied imagination, this what I call the involuntary imagination, right? That you don't jump back because you want to jump back because you want to imagine that it's a snake. You imagine it's a snake. So you're thrown into that imagination. Um, that uh, uh, th- that uh, embodied imagination is um constantly activating us we're constantly um we're constantly embodied by imagination so the more you can feel how you're being embodied by imagination how that works and how um other perspectives are influencing you that it's not just your own perspective that is influencing you but other perspectives are influencing you as well that can be other perspectives of your partner and it can be the perspective of your children or it can be the perspective of something that exists purely in imagination that is not even that is something that came in 50 years ago and still is influencing you and still influences you as if it is today or something that you have never seen before like you talked before that comes purely out of imagination all these things influence us and if we deal with them and deal with them in a profound way we change and we change in a way that i've seen is a positive change and so embodied imagination is also the the um uh is also important for one of my interests which is alchemy um because alchemy Uh, Alchemy was a a very important um, study that lasted for maybe 2000 years. And it was at a time that we didn't know very much about physicality and about the material world. So much about what much what alchemy is talking about is imagination. It sees imagination because it don't doesn't know what it is. Now we are still seeing imagination, but we also know a lot more about matter. So imagination is more limited. Um, but if you look at quantum physics, there it's very difficult to distinguish between imagination and physicality. It's very difficult. Uh, but in alchemy, alchemical times, they, which is before the 17th century, um, there was very little knowledge about uh, physicality. So imagination took up a much bigger Uh, a much bigger section of our observation. And um, so much of alchemy is embodiment of imagination. It's embodied imagination. It's the way that a matter um, is imagined by humans. And um, so therefore uh, alchemy gives us access to uh, imagination in its deepest form. Uh, not the imagination on the surface, but the very deep imagination. Can you tell us about colors and alchemy and how they relate to our everyday life? To put it in the context of narration. So a a narrative is a linear story. And so um, as I I, I talk about, um, uh, what I talk about is that I I put it in this linear story. Um, 
uh, and for alchemists, all these things happen at the same time. So, but to understand it, I have to put it in a linear story. So the alchemists would say that everything begins in green. Um, and green is um, the way of innocence. It's the way of springtime. It is the way um, that things naturally grow, growth, all that is green. And then um, they say what happens is uh, that becomes a, a system that becomes uh, brittle and strong and that cannot no longer develop. And it in order for it to go through ongoing development, it has to turn black. Black is about rot, is about falling apart, is about um, things not going the way they were going before, is war. All those kind of things are related to what is called in alchemy, negredo, the black state where everything falls apart and where consciousness disappears and where you drop into consciousness, the experience of it is depressive, depressing. Like, for instance, if you look at what's going on in Ukraine at the moment and you look at the television, you naturally get depressed because that is a negredo state. That is something falling apart in the most cruel, crucial, horrible way. That is, that is a negredo state, what's happening there. And, um, and then as we move through that, um, and we begin to come out of that, then you get into the dark blues, that you have the blues, you see what you've lost. You see that you have the feeling of loss. You have the feeling of, I have nothing anymore. Everything is destroyed. There's nothing anymore. You can grieve and you can feel that feeling of loss. That's, that's the movement from the back to the dark blues. And then um, it says it moves to the light blues. The light blues is called the heaven the heaven blues, and that light blue is, uh, they call it in Latin, the Salem. Uh, the, the, the light blues is where you begin to notice that there is a spark in everything, that there is a living spark, but it's a new spark. It's the spark of the next phase, the spark of the new beginning. That is the, the, the light blue. And then it comes to the white or the silver, it's called the albedo, the white, and in the silver, we begin to see reflection. So we begin to be able to reflect about what is new, what is coming into being. And we begin to see more what is happening to the world around us in a reflective state. And then from this reflective state, you get into the yellow. The yellow is about fermentation. So then this reflective state moves into the body and begins to ferment the whole embodied state. And out of that comes action, comes gold, and that action of gold or the healing that is the movement into the world of this reflective state that has gone through a fermentation of an, something new that has come into being. So that would be one of the ways that alchemists could look at colors. So how does alchemy apply to what you do in your healing sanctuary? How do you apply that to you know, treating clients well, or patients? We help people to go through... Um, uh, we we help people to um, uh, connect to these new sparks because um, what what happens is that uh, uh, I go from the perspective that um, we are a self healing system that um, when you have a cut the doctor will stitch make stitches but the the body is healing the cut so um, the body heals itself all the time. And then there are situations where the body can no longer do that. It's 
has gone too far for the body to heal itself. And then you can go into it with allopathic medicine, or you can go into it with homeopathic medicine, or you can go into it with, um, uh, with this embodied imagination. So um, then you see what images come out of the illness. And then you begin to treat the images that come out of the illness and those images then begin to affect the illness. That's one of the oldest systems of Western medicine. It was from uh, about 2,500 years ago. And um, people must have heard, you must have heard of Hippocrates mm -hmm. uh, because the physicians still uh, swear by him, the Hippocratic Oath, um, I shall do no harm. And uh, Hippocrates was a follower of um, Asclepius. Asclepius was the, the god of healing in um, in Greece. And um, so one of the central things in the healing sanctuary was a place that was called the Abaton. The Abaton is the place where the dreamers go. And the word Abatain means where you don't normally trod. So you go to a place where you don't normally go, a place that is untrodden as yet. And there you begin to dream. And that's where the healing god which we would call the self-healing power where the healing god comes to you and gives you images gives you way to ways to heal your body so this we thereby trigger the self-healing response make it stronger and that is very effective and we know how effective it is from all the placebo studies because in placebo studies, you can see that um, that people have particular expectations, and these expectations are actually healing. So, if you have, for instance, a, the, one of the, the greatest um, placebos that we have is uh, physical operations. There are um, people that have had knee operations where they just opened up the knee and then they closed it again, didn't do anything, and the knee healed. Mm -hmm. um, there were operations, physical operations, heart operations from the 50s that people healed from and that were later found to be completely ineffective and having absolutely no, no reason behind them. But people healed from them because they, the operation has such a strong placebo effect. So we know that expectation and ritual and those kind of things are can be healing. So that's what the way that we used it. Can you tell us the difference between voluntary and involuntary imagination? So the involuntary imagination is, for instance, I walk in the woods and I see something and I imagine it to be a snake and then later hear from my visual cortex, no, it's not a snake, it's a stick. That is involuntary imagination. You have no choice. Um, this just happens to you. So involuntary imagination happens to you. A dream is involuntary imagination, just happens to you. You find yourself there. Voluntary imagination is like, for instance, um, I imagine what I'm going to eat tonight, or um, I um, imagine how I'm going to do this, or I uh, remember what things were like yesterday. Um, those are because uh, memory is a form of imagination, right? And um, uh, and so you um, you have direct voluntary access to it. And uh, the the imagination I'm interested in is what you do not have direct voluntary access to. Even though it's involuntary, you would still say it's creative. 
Yes, it's very creative because it creates whole worlds. Every dream is, a, is an act of genius. It's total creation because the world that you're in does not exist in the physical world. It is at that moment created. And so uh, if you look at it compared to Hollywood, it would cost $100 million mm. and it would take a year to make it. And it happens in a fraction of a second. So, yes, I think dreaming is one of the most creative activities that we have. Let's say if you want to become a great basketball player, you can just stand in front of a basketball hoop and imagine that you're making perfect baskets every time. Do you mm -hmm. find benefit in that? Well, um, it doesn't matter whether I find benefit in it. Um, it is something that people who have researched it found benefit in. It's been researched, I forget her name, professor at Harvard, and you can uh, you can look it up at, in uh, TED Talks if you look at um, the Wonder Woman stance, um, where as you are in a particular position, if you put yourself in, in a heroic position like mm -hmm. this, if you stand in it for a minute or two, your hormones will start changing. So it does affect the body. Those kind of things do affect the body. And um, when somebody um, uh, is doing um, gymnastics, when they let their body in slow imagination go through it, that affects directly their gymnastics routine. If you are a skier and you feel the way you're going through it, the more you feel it in your body, the better it will affect your way of um, your way of skiing the next day. So yes, all these things are uh, dem uh, demonstrable. You can demonstrate that. Why do you think involuntary imagination matters to the creative arts? If you help yourself to be in contact with, for instance, dreaming, or like I, I worked at the, Royal Shakespeare Company, where I worked with the actors in, in, in Stratford in England. And um, you can have uh, the, the actor get into character and then the character will start dreaming. And we take the dreams as if they were dreamt by the character, not just by the actor, and then it will change. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing is that um, the most nominated movie of the year for these Oscars is The Power of the Dog, and that was entirely dreamworked. So the Jane Campion uh, did dreamwork on it, and Benedict Cumberbatch did dreamwork on it. So the the dreaming have uh, has influenced and informed that movie dramatically, and it became a fantastic movie. People like Mozart would say the music would just come to them. Some mm -hmm. art, some songwriters will say, yeah, the songs just come to me. Yeah. Would you say that that is coming to them from embodied imagination? I would say so. I would say that the imagination it presents itself as fully embodied. But the interesting thing about it is that it is you can transpose it directly from imagination into physical reality that's like mozart it's the myth about mozart right mm -hmm. um i'm talking myth in the sense that a uh, structure of imagination that's how we imagine mozart and that's what he said um uh, but um much uh, so that would be in al alchemically speaking that would be a movement from the white directly to the red 
That's not the way it usually goes. The way it usually goes is it has to go through the yellow. So it has to go through an incubation period. So you get the song coming in, but then you have to work on it. You have to work on it and work on it and let it go through your whole skill set and move through all that. And then it comes out. So it has to go through a yellowing before it can go to the red. But some people, um, uh, Paul McCartney describes it too, like... Um, uh, like yesterday, the the the, the song yesterday, um, uh, he the song came through, the sound came through, the words didn't. He called it scrambled eggs, right? right. Scrambled eggs, and so that is um, that's a way. Then it has to still go through yellowing. The words still have to come. But it has to be brought into the body. The song has to be brought into the body so the words can come out. When I used to write children's stories for videos, a lot of yeah. times the ideas would come to me when I wasn't forcing it. I would be out right. cutting the grass or doing right. something completely different. And, and maybe you could say that I was in a trance-like state. And then... Yeah this imagination would come to me. That's why um, I call it involuntary imagination. You didn't want it to happen. Um, it came to you unasked for. And I think some of the best imagination comes to you unasked for. Um, and uh, I think if you focus too much on something and you really want it to happen, some, it doesn't happen. Then you better go and do something else and just let your mind go away from it and then... Uh, something comes back and then suddenly it's there and you can do it because that's what how I wrote my novels, these uh, these four novels that have just come out. I, I wrote it from by by way of hearing the characters speak, listening to the characters every time. So that's involuntary. Every time that I tried to insert myself and create the story, it was a mess. But when I went then back to letting the character speak and letting the letting it come to me and describing what was happening to them, um, I um, the story progressed. Um, it's interesting because my uh, the whole Red Sulfur saga um, started from uh, a piece of work that I had done because I've been studying uh, alchemy now for fifty years that uh, I was asked to give a lecture about, and that later became an article, um, about, um, uh, about, about sulfur. And uh, so I found that there had been a transmutation from lead into gold that was verified by Spinoza. Spinoza is one of the greatest philosophers of the second millennium. It was verified by Robert Boyle. It was ver Robert Boyle is the um, is the father of modern chemistry. It was verified by the mint master of the Netherlands, and so it was seen to be real gold and real transformation had happened. So I became very interested because I'd always taken it as that these were things that happened not in physical reality but in imaginal reality. And so I began to study it and found that there were whole things written about it. And I decided that the best way to explore this is through fiction, because we know a little bit about it, but the rest has to be imagined. So I started to put myself in the shoes of this 
family that has the last of the philosopher's stone because that's what it's said to be like the philosopher's stone you may also know as the sorcerer's stone from Mm -hmm. harry potter yeah um uh, so the philosopher's stone is the source of all creativity it's the essence of all creativity for the alchemist it is the the material used by the divine to create the world so the essence of god and um that essence was according to alchemy could be created and put together in something that is highly concentrated that they called the philosopher's stone philosopher's stone was also called red sulfur so when you have access to that red sulfur you can um, you can live forever, you can heal everything, you can make things turn from low value to high value. Those are all the the things of the Philosopher's Stone. And so this one alchemist whose ancestor had created the Philosopher's Stone, but as alchemy went into decay in the 16th century, um, Nobody now knows how to make the Philosopher's Stone. We're in 1666 and nobody knows how to do it anymore. But there is this one alchemist who still has it. And this and this red sulfur wants to be uh, passed along in his bloodline and he doesn't have children. And so he falls in love with the woman, but the woman can't have children. And so... Um, she says, well, the woman that I brought up as my daughter, she will have our children for us. And that then happens. And it is mayhem. It's a terrible triangle that, that comes into being. And then it's the, we follow that family as it is being chased by kings and um, phantoms and all alike through a period in European history, which is, I think, one of the most important periods of European history. It's the ascent the coming into being of science which happened in the 17th century which is a huge struggle between the church of rome and the forces of tolerance that that are battles like between louis the 14th the king of versailles the sun king and um william of orange who was um the later became the king of england and was the head of holland the netherlands where um, so it was a struggle between Protestantism and, and Catholicism, and that was about the birth of science. It was, was a totally fascinating time in which this very interesting triangle was happening romantically, and they give birth to, um, uh, to uh, twins who have to battle out, and then it becomes very similar to what you would see in Marvel comics, then they have to battle out if this power that they have is going to be used for good or for evil, and the and the phantoms of evil try to get it, get it and eat them up so that they can change the universe forever. So that's over four books. It's a very fascinating story. It became very fascinating to me. I worked on it for 10 years, and it's now at Amazon. You can get it, finally, you can get it at Amazon. Well, congratulations on writing that and not only writing it, but seeing it through since it took you 10 years to write that. Right. Yes. It's um, I think that that when you do things that are of value, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy. That's why a lot of people prefer to just sit down and have it in kind of a vapid imagination. But vapid Mm -hmm. imagination doesn't work. You have to really focus and concentrate. 
I believe you were saying that at least parts of your books were written by or through involuntary imagination. Yes. As well as the Beatles, Paul McCartney, Mozart, and all these people. Yeah. So the big question is, where does the imagination... As, as, and as are, your, as are your children's stories. Right. It, right. Where is this source coming from? Is it the symbolic philosopher's stone? Is it coming from God, from collective unconsciousness? You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> See, um, I'm not wise. I'm just a fool that deals with this stuff. Um, uh, but it can come from many different sources. The alchemist would say it comes directly from the divine presence. Mm. Um uh, um, a Christian might say it comes from the Lord Jesus to me. Um, an Aboriginal person might say it comes from um, from the great lizard over there uh, or from the rainbow snake. Um, it depends where you are, right. um, what, it, what it means. Um, and that's why uh, the Hindu, for instance, have a million gods. So it can come from a million different sides. Where are you personally? Are you Christian? Are you spiritual? Or where is it coming for you? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm a Jew, uh, but I am not Jewish. I always say I'm a Jew, but not Jewish. So um, I am part of the tribe of Judah. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in my um, in my philosophy, I am what I call a radical agnostic, and a radical agnostic is somebody who passionately doesn't know i really 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 don't know i really don't know where this all comes from to me it is a gigantic mystery and i feel incredibly privileged to be part of that mystery what an incredible privilege this is all mystery we have no idea and we're part of it how marvelous is that you have your new series out of books on amazon the red sulfur series you have your healing sanctuary in Santa Barbara. What else do you got going on that you'd like us to know about? Well, the healing sanctuary in Santa Barbara at the moment is closed because of COVID. Um, uh, I uh, do, for those of you who are interested in um, in work on alchemy or on dreaming, um, you can get many, many of my lectures and courses at jungplatform.com, J-U-N-G, Jung, like... The, like the psychiatrist Jung platform in one word jungplatform.com and um, for those of you who want to do dream groups and be part of dream groups I have a website called cyberdreamwork.com cyberdreamwork.com um, but I am mostly interested to, to for people to take a look at this novel you'll have never seen anything like it um, if you're interested in alchemy, it explains alchemy also in a way that you, that it's very accessible. The story, I think, is it's great. It's remarkable to me, too, because I learned the story from my characters. And um, you can find it at, at Amazon as in book form, in Kindle form, and also in um, Audible as a spoken book. Before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? In the first place, Liz, as I said, the, um, the world we're in is one grand mystery. And um, I always go from the perspective, um, 
that, uh, and I don't know if you find this positive or not, um, that I'm on my deathbed and I ask, I plead with God for one more day, one more day. This is that day. This is my bonus day. And I experience life every day as a bonus day. And that works very well for me. Dr. Bosnak, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. I really appreciate you and have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. You too. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.